Then there's this weird superstition that if you talk about death or you think about it, you'll somehow bring it on yourself, right? Like if you had a conversation with your partner tonight about your funeral wishes, like God will smite you down tomorrow with like a lightning bolt because you were talking about death. Welcome to Mission Critical, a podcast about the big picture, the purpose, and the values that drive today's most game-changing companies, entrepreneurs, and leaders. I'm your host, Lance Chung, Editor-in-Chief of Bay Street Bull, and I'll be introducing you to a group of brilliant minds who are making an impact on the world and forging the path ahead. While they may all be very different from one another, the question remains the same. What's your mission? Death is inevitable. The one true guarantee in life is, ironically, the end of it. So why don't we plan better for something that is so obviously going to happen? Why is there still so much taboo and stigma attached to our dialogue around death? Sure, it's an uncomfortable topic, but the more we prepare ourselves with the unavoidable, the less scary it'll be. The more we confront our own mortality and the things that orbit around it, the easier it'll be to talk about and deal with it, no? That's the underlying thesis behind Willful, a Toronto-based startup that is looking to normalize death. That is how we prepare for, talk about, and deal with death. Their first product, as their name may suggest, is an online platform that makes the process of creating a legal will more affordable and convenient for individuals to access. After a year like 2020, where many people were forced to have difficult conversations with their loved ones about end-of-life planning, Willful has become a powerful tool for people to gain more confidence and control over their estate. A joint survey conducted by Willful and Arbor Memorial revealed that 34% of Canadians initiated a conversation about end-of-life plans in 2020, including making or updating the will. Of those surveyed, 37% indicated that they would prioritize the end-of-life plans in 2021. These are challenging but important conversations that are being discussed, and in pandemic times, a priority that saw a 240% increase in will creation at the beginning of 2021 in comparison to the previous year for Willful. On today's episode, Willful CEO and co-founder Aaron Burry joins me to talk about how she's grown a company, destigmatizing death, and everything you need to know about creating a will. Aaron, we have Aaron Burry today, co-founder and CEO of Willful. How are you? I'm good, Lance. How are you? Well, I want to thank you for taking the time for chatting with us today. I want to talk about wills and estate planning and Willful, your company, as well as just the bigger picture around the conversation and dialogue we have around death and end of life planning and the stigma and the culture we have towards it. Death is inevitable. It's the one true thing that we can really plan for. And so why don't we? And that's kind of really what I wanted to unpack and what that whole process is like. But maybe we can start with, you know, you telling me a little bit more about Willful, how it started, what it is, and where it's at today. For sure. Well, if we haven't lost the listener now by saying the word death three to four times, then congrats, you're still here with us. We're excited. And I promise that we'll make this engaging. Yeah, It's funny, I always say with Willful, I'm trying to inject some personality into conversations about death because they do tend to be very taboo. It's not a topic that people talk about at the kitchen table. It's kind of like money in that sense where you Mm. don't really bring it up at a dinner party. 
And it's typically associated with all of these depressing emotions and ads and companies. And so I think what we can do to kind of bring some levity to the space is just to put a personality around it and to hopefully make it more approachable through education. Really, the background is I'm not a, an estate lawyer. I am a former journalist. I was on the founding team at Startup Publication Betakit. I ran a marketing agency for about six years working with tech companies. And it was while I was there that my husband, Kevin, his relative passed away suddenly and that process of trying to gather all of these pieces of information and p paperwork and sit around with family and argue about, you know, what he would want to be buried in. It just kind of highlighted a, that we don't talk about this stuff, but B that the process for doing so is very inefficient. There's not a lot of places to capture that information or to put together a plan. So that was where the seed of the idea started. And quite honestly, Lance, when he told me the idea, I said, could you pick a less sexy business idea? Like anything else other than estate planning, please. Because like you probably, I didn't learn about it in school. It wasn't something I talked about with my parents. At the time, we didn't have kids or pets or didn't own a home. And so it just really hadn't entered my mind as a priority. But as I started learning more as he was embarking on this business, I became very passionate, have become very passionate about the need for Canadians to put these types of plans in place, regardless of how old you are. And then when COVID hit, as I know we're going to talk about, I think that became clearer to more people than just me. Can you walk me through the process? How does someone start the process on Willful and what does that whole experience look like? Yeah, so I think what we really set out to do at Willful is to reduce the barrier to getting the core legal documents associated with estate planning. So primarily your will and your power of attorney documents. A will comes into effect when you pass away. It says who gets your stuff, who takes care of any of your dependents, and it appoints an executor who's going to wrap up your estate. Whereas a power of attorney document only comes into effect if you're incapacitated. So it's the one you hope never comes into effect, but it's there just in case. Think of willful like the turbo tax for estate planning. So we're really trying to remove the legalese, remove the in-person appointments in a lawyer's office, and most importantly, remove the four-figure price tag to get these documents done. And as a user, you really just sign up, you answer a series of about 10 to 15 questions. Some of that is personal information that would help us to understand, you know, where you live and make sure we have the right documents for you. Uh, and then part of that is appointing those key roles that I mentioned, you know, appointing beneficiaries, uh, appointing guardians for your pets or children. And then at the end of it, you get a nice shiny set of PDF documents because the law says you still have to print these documents, unfortunately, and execute them on paper. But we get you as far of the way as we can on Willful's platform. From learning more about wills and estate planning, why did you see this as an opportunity to freshen up this industry? Because it doesn't seem like there's been much innovation in the space and it doesn't seem like there has been an easier way to do this very traditional thing that people don't really consider very much and also remove some of the barriers to entry because uh, whether that's cost, as you mentioned, or accessing it through technology, especially in a time like a pandemic, what are some of the changes that the industry needed, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I think the first gap that we noticed was there was no estate planning brand that appealed to 
don't want to say a millennial, I'd say a digital savvy consumer. Traditionally, if you were getting a will done or you were doing anything to do with estate planning, you would probably visit a lawyer or an accountant in their office, pay them by the hour. There were a couple other online will platforms, but they were pretty antiquated in their design and user experience. And so as consumers who were using Wealthsimple and Airbnb and Uber, you go to a site that looks like it's you know, 10 years old, and it doesn't really speak to you, right? So the first thing that we thought we could improve upon was just a brand that spoke to today's digital consumer that was really focused on breaking down the barriers, educating people, and giving them a really beautiful experience, whether they were on their smartphone, tablet, or computer. Then when COVID hit, it really became apparent that that paper-based part of the will process was the biggest challenge and that needed to innovate. Unfortunately, we don't have the control to change the laws and every province has a different set of legislation that dictates that wills have to be printed and signed on paper. So a big thing that we did at the beginning of COVID is we offered free printing and shipping of wills because, you know, who has a printer at home? We all had them (laughs) at our office and we're using those to print out our documents. And then we also worked on a big project lobbying the government in Ontario saying, you know, we're hearing from consumers every day who don't understand how they're going to get their will executed when they have to get together with witnesses outside their home, yet they're being told to stay in their home and social distance. So a lot of it was just kind of highlighting to the government and being the voice of the consumer to say, this has to change. It's 2021. So hopefully the law will change at some point. It moves slowly, but when it does, we'll be there to execute wills digitally, to store them on our platform. And that's really the future of where we see Wolfpool going. Now, is that the result of a bureaucratic pace or more of a resistance to embracing technological innovation in this space? I think it's a little column A and a little column B. You have an attorney general who is very focused on digital innovation, which bodes well for changes like that. But the people they consult in their inner circle to make decisions on these things are folks like the Law Society of Ontario, the Ontario Bar Association, and their ranks are made up of traditional lawyers who frankly see technology as a threat. Unfortunately, we're kind of the black sheep in the industry, not just willful, but anybody in legal tech who is you know, replacing something a lawyer would do or providing another option. Uh, we don't think that we're replacing lawyers because we don't cater to the complex scenarios. And there's lots of folks who would rather sit and get advice from a lawyer. We're really catering to the millions of people who would never pay $2,500 for their will and who may never want to walk into a lawyer's office because it's inconvenient or they're overwhelmed. So I think the industry is slow moving because it's a bit reticent to technological change and adopting digital practices. But it's one of those things that consumers will demand it at some point. Consumers are going to say, it's 2032. This is ridiculous. I have to still go. They're not going to stand for it. So we're just hopeful that they make the change before it becomes so inconvenient that consumers have to revolt. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Part of 
of what I want to talk about is really just what that whole process of getting a will is like. And selfishly, I also just want to learn more about this because mm-hmm. I'm not too familiar with it. So this is also a, a learning expedition for me. But maybe we can zoom out to start and really start with like the big question, which is why are we and it seems like an obvious question, but why are we so reluctant to talk about death? It's of course scary, but doesn't that mean that we should talk about it more? Why do you think there is this still this culture and, and taboo around end of life planning? Yeah, I chalk it up to a few things. The first I would say is just cultural norms. In North America, we don't really talk about death the same way that the Japanese do or other cultures who really embrace old age and end of life. And 200 years ago, you know, death was ever present in society because death was just at an earlier age was more common. So I think part of it is as our lifespans have grown longer, we've just avoided having those conversations and pushed them off to later in life. Then there's this weird superstition that if you talk about death or you think about it, you'll somehow bring it on yourself, right? Like if Summon you it. had a yeah, like if you had a conversation with your partner tonight about your funeral wishes, like God will smite you down tomorrow with like a lightning bolt because you were talking about death, right? It's almost this idea that if you don't look at it, if you don't acknowledge it, it can't possibly reach you. And then the other part of it, I think, is knowing what to have the conversations about. What about death are you talking about? For me, it's things like funeral and burial wishes and whether you have the key legal documents, where they're stored, what you want your legacy to be and how I can help my parents, let's say, to fulfill that. But a lot of people don't necessarily have the vernacular, the questions, or they don't know what they should be thinking about. So they just kind of, you know, like me when I was before willful, it didn't enter my mind because it was not something I was ever exposed to. So I think the more people talk about it, the more it will hopefully spread and not death, the conversation and, uh, (laughs) and it will become more commonplace. And millennials are actually, and younger generations are much more open to talking about it. So I do think that we will see a society that shifts more towards being okay with talking about it. Why is it so important to talk about wills and end-of-life planning what's at stake what's there to gain what's just like a straightforward kind of answer that we can have to that yeah the bottom line is you are not creating a will for you it's like life insurance you will never benefit from it wills and any sort of of end-of-life planning only benefit your family and what you're really doing is you are saving your family hundreds of hours of work and the mental stress that comes from not knowing if they're doing the right thing by you. So a will is a really clear legal document that lays that out, you know, who you would want your stuff to go to. But then there's also the conversations outside of that about things like what song you want played at your funeral and what type of ceremony you want. I mean, I don't want some boring funeral in a funeral home. I want a party with wine and pizza. And if I don't tell my my husband that, then he might throw me a boring funeral home funeral, which just wouldn't match my personality at all, right? So on the legal side of it, if you don't have a will, the government has a formula that dictates who gets your assets. And I don't care if that's $1,000 in a savings account and an heirloom recipe book, or if that's five houses in Muskoka and millions of dollars in the bank, your assets are your assets and none of them should be distributed according to a government formula. So the biggest reason to have a will is to make sure that your stuff ends up with the people that you want instead of who the government dictates. 
And then if you have, especially if you have kids or pets, it's so important to assign guardians because uh, otherwise the court's going to make that decision for you. And I always say to people, think of that like weird cousin or that brother-in-law that you do not want to come to Christmas dinner. That's the person that could end up taking care of your kids or your pets because anybody can apply to do that if you don't appoint that person in your will. Oh, oh so that's a, it's an application that people can apply to for guardianship or your assets, I guess, or how does that so not apply for your assets? So your assets is a formula. So if you pass away without a will, the government says, okay, this is, you know, your spouse gets everything. If you have a spouse and kids, they split it and it moves down the line. And if you have no living heirs whatsoever, the government gets it. So that's the only case in which the government gets all your money. So if you don't have any living relatives, then you definitely want to get a will. But if you pass away without a will, the court is going to appoint an executor for you who's going to wrap up your estate, and they're going to appoint a guardian for your minor children. So anybody could apply for that role, and it may not be the person that you would have wanted. Whereas if you name that person in your will, then they're going to receive that appointment. When we're having these conversations, you see words like wills, estate planning, end of life planning. Is there a difference between all of these or are they interchangeable? Does one encompass the other? What is the difference between a will and estate planning or end of life planning or is it all the same? Great question. So if you think about a will as just one component of the larger process of estate planning, then that's probably helpful to kind of delineate it. So estate planning is almost an umbrella term that covers anything to do with the financial side of preparing for end of life. So things like getting life insurance, for example, making sure that your assets are held jointly with someone so that they transfer automatically when you pass away, maybe putting together some trusts that are going to pass assets as when you pass away, and then putting a will together. When you say end of life planning, to me, that's all the stuff outside the financials. So that's not just who gets my stuff and how do I pass my assets on efficiently so I have to pay as little taxes as possible. That's things like the, the legacy side, the, the funeral and burial wishes, the, you know, I want my sister to get my favorite shirt because I know it's she loves it. Like, you know, some of the softer side of the plans I would put into end of life planning. I saw that uh, Willful did a joint survey with Arbor Memorial Inc., Canada's leading cemetery and funeral provider, and it said 45% of those who indicated that they had not had a conversation about end-of-life planning in 2020, I believe, felt like the conversation was not applicable to them. That's a pretty big number. And so what would be some of the common reasons someone would have to feel like end-of-life planning wouldn't apply to them? I think a really common one is people think they're too young to worry about it. So I hear people all the time say, well, I don't need a will until I'm like 60 or 70, right? Listen, I hope that you live to be 99. I hope you live to be an octogenarian, but the unexpected can happen anytime. COVID definitely showed us that. And really estate planning or, or creating a will is about getting it in place before you need it. Because as soon as you pass away, it's too late. You've died without a will. Now your family has to deal with that. 
So I think that's one myth is that you have to be really old. In reality, you don't. I mean, you can create a will as soon as you turn 18. Certainly wasn't my first priority when I went away to university and was learning all about the bar scene in Ottawa. But as soon as you get you know, a large asset, you get married, you have kids, get a pet, those are the life moments that will probably cause you to think about getting a will. A lot of people say things like, I don't really care because I'll be gone, right? There's this sense that, well, I'm not here. So it doesn't really matter if I put plans in place because my family will just deal with it when I'm gone. Right, it's not my problem. Exactly, which is a little bit to me of a selfish attitude in that, you know, if you can reduce burden on your family by spending a couple hours while you're alive, it seems like you would want to go out of your way to do that. But some people don't feel that way. The other side of it is I think people just think that they don't have enough assets. So they'll say mm. things like, well, I don't need a will because I, I'm not rich. And I always say, you know, your assets are not just financial investments or real estate properties or cars. They're also things like your clothes, your musical instruments, your family heirlooms, your baseball card collection, like your assets comprise so many things that you don't have to be a millionaire to want to pass those things on to the right people. So those are a few of the reasons why people think that it doesn't apply to them. I mean, as you said earlier, death is the one thing that applies to all of us. And so when you're accounting for your assets and your non-financial assets, I mean, because to, to create a will, it takes about, what, what did you say, 20, about 20 minutes or? Yeah, as long as you know the key choices you want to put in there. Right. And so when you're making, I guess, like an inventory of your assets, like what is considered, is it basically anything that you would want to be passed on to a specific individual or what's involved in understanding what goes into the list of assets that you would include in a will? Yeah. So you're typically not listing out all of your assets in your will, just because those change all the time. And also when you pass away, if your will goes through probate, which is just the court process of accepting a will, it becomes public domain. So people don't necessarily want their, you know, second cousins and random acquaintances knowing exactly what they held at the time they passed away. So typically in your will, you're giving your assets in two ways. You can either give them as a specific gift, and that typically tends to be something bigger or something of sentimental value that you absolutely want to go to a specific person. So for example, in my will, I've left all of my clothes and my jewelry to my sister because I know that she's going to enjoy them. I've left my guitar to my stepdad because he loves guitars. Uh, so I just picked these kind of monetary value or sentimental things that I want to pass on. And then if you don't leave it specifically, it just falls into your estate and then it's divided up by percentage. So you can distribute your estate, which is just all the assets that are left after your debts and taxes have been paid and those specific gifts have been given out. And you could say, you know, I give everything to my spouse or you could break it up to a hundred people with 1% each. You could leave money to a charity. You can really do it however you want. And then your executor is the person who's going to make that inventory of everything you own after you pass away. They're going to value it, liquidate it if they need to. They're going to come up with this big pot of assets, and then they're going to distribute it by percentage according to the wishes you've outlined in your will. And who are the type of people that are usually involved in, in the process? You have an executor, a lawyer, I assume. What are kind of the key people that you need on your team to really see everything through? Yeah, so when someone passes away, the executor is responsible for wrapping up the estate, but it's a 12 to 18 month process and it's oh. full of 
financial stuff, right? You're making accounting inventories and selling assets and moving things into trust accounts. So a lot of people hire an accountant and a lawyer to help them through that process. And the expenses come out of the estate. So you're not paying out of pocket for that. Obviously, I think there's a very big, I hate the term ripe for disruption, but that's also a very manual process that's driven by professionals and costs a lot of money. So we've thought about things like how could we simplify that probate process and easily help people apply for probate and go through that court process without having to engage a professional. But right now it's, it's typically a lawyer and accountant that are helping you after someone passes away. And so you can get a will drafted or created when you reach the age of the majority in your province? Yeah. And then how often should you update your will after certain life milestones? Great question. I mean, people are very reticent to think about or talk about death. So they'll create a will, they'll pat themselves on the back, put the will in a filing cabinet drawer, it'll gather dust for 30 years. And then when they pass away, the executor they named had already died and half their beneficiaries are gone. And, you know, they have an ex-spouse in there that shouldn't even be in there. So the answer is you should be reviewing your will or any of your other estate plans once a year, just like you do your taxes. Hmm. Nobody wants to sit down and do their taxes. Nobody wants to sit down and think about death. Sit down at the same time, get them out of the way, (laughs) take two hours every April and just look at it. Make sure that it's still up to date. Make sure no one has passed away. Make sure you're still married to the person it says that you're married to. If you've had new children, you may want to add them in. If you've moved provinces, you should switch your province, which you could easily do on Willful and just reprint a new document. So those are the types of changes, marriage, divorce, having a child, or if any of those specific gifts that you've named, you sell or get rid of. So if I've left my guitar to my sister or my stepdad and I sell it, I don't have a guitar anymore, I might want to actually take that out and maybe replace it with something else. So you probably will update it anywhere from three to seven times in your life, depending on how many life changes you go through. Death and taxes, it's the two inevitabilities of life. A hundred percent. Yep. Not fun, but very necessary. What proportion would you say, um, would you estimate of people don't currently have a will in place or have considered formally planning, you know, their estate and their end of life planning? Well, I can tell you exactly, Lance, because we did a <laughs> uh, an Angus Reid survey a couple of years ago that found 57% of Canadian adults don't have a will. But that number is 89% amongst those under 35. Something I find interesting is the rise of digital assets this year, right? Like you can't go a day without reading about NFTs and crypto. And those are not easy to track down or access if someone passes away or there's an emergency and the executor or family members don't have that private key or, or access details. So the younger you are, the less likely you are to have put these plans in place, but the more likely you are to have this massive digital footprint and digital assets of value like crypto. And so it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out when, you know, when something happens. I mean, that's so interesting. And you read stories, horror stories around when, when someone passes away and their loved one is not able to access certain accounts, I guess, closure for themselves, which is, again, coming back to this bigger conversation around doing it for your loved ones and your family and your friends or whatever it might be. It's not really for you. And it's interesting because we are in such a digital age where we have a lot more assets that are being created and accumulated in a digital space. What are some of the assets or things that people need to consider 
in terms of their digital life and their digital personas and their digital assets when it comes to um, thinking about their will? It's thinking about access, right? So for example, I use 1Password, great Canadian company, password sharing platform. And I've created a vault with all of my personal passwords and I've shared it with my executor, who's my husband. So if anything happened, he not only has my logins, but I've also recorded things like the password to my phone, the password to my laptop, you know, my passport number, like things like that, that maybe he would forget or I, you know, have changed over the years. I think the first step is making sure that someone in your life has access to those passwords. The tricky part is most platforms say in their terms and conditions that it's actually illegal to impersonate someone else. So if I were to pass away and my husband were to log into my bank account or my social media platforms, he's actually violating the terms and conditions by doing that. But the challenge is a lot of these sites don't have posted death policies. Facebook is the only social media platform that says you can appoint a, a contact to actually deal with your account after you pass away. Every other platform, if you don't have your partner's or loved one's password, you're dealing with these big tech conglomerates to try to navigate through customer support and figure out a way to get access. So it's it's pretty inefficient. And I, I do think we'll see a big trend in the next few years of everything from financial apps to social media platforms, adding death policies and death capabilities that make it really easy to transfer an account to someone after someone passes away. I was reading a story about how Prince, when he had passed away, did not have a will or had you know any plans for his estate. And there's a lot of other high-profile people. Does it surprise you when you know these individuals that have accrued such a huge foundation of assets when they haven't considered end-of-life planning or or an estate or a will when they have so much that that their name is tied to? It always surprises me, not only when people have that many assets, because you'd think that they have a trusted inner circle that's telling them who is their accountant that didn't say, hey, you need yeah. to get a will, Aretha, because you have quite a few assets. But the procrastination and the avoidance of death is universal. It doesn't matter if you're an A-list celebrity or you or I sitting on this call, they probably had the same fears, the same reticence, the same sense of, I can put it off till tomorrow because I'm going to live forever that a lot of people do. So it actually doesn't surprise me from that perspective that people like that don't have a will. What does surprise me is when I hear people who have passed away with terminal illnesses that they've known about for quite a while and don't have a will, because that to me even further underscores, you know, Chadwick Boseman, cancer for years. And so he had all the time in the world to sit down and take hours or however long it would have taken him with his team of professionals to put something together that really made sense for his family. And that's what shocks me is that you knew it was coming and yet you still didn't prioritize it. And that's because I still think right up until the last second, people do everything they can, even when faced with their own death, to, to not think about it. We had the same thing in my family. My aunt's husband passed away before I was born from a brain tumor. And he refused to discuss it with her. Never meant, talked about it once. He refused to admit that he was going to pass away up until the day that he did. So it's just really interesting how we as people 
refuse to acknowledge what's right in front of us and do things that will actually help our family. But I also can't say I've never been in that position. So I don't want to also judge what someone else is going through. So if we do want to have, you know, start these conversations, whether we're looking to create a will for ourselves and talk to people about being the executors or have a discussion with them, or if we want to talk to our family members and start a conversation around them planning for that, how is, is, is a good way to start those conversations in a way that doesn't feel or will not come off as one opportunistic, two insensitive, uh, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, the thing that I hear constantly, especially from adult children who want to talk to their parents about it, is, well, I don't want to be seen as a gold digger. I don't want to be seen as asking about who they're leaving things to, especially when there's multiple children in the family or blended families. So I always say, don't lead with the financial side of it. Lead with legacy. Everyone knows someone who passed away recently, whether it was a celebrity or whether it was someone in your friend network. Even recently, uh, last fall, I sat down with my parents and I said, listen, I run a will company and I'm the executor for your estate. So I not only need to know about your finances and where you keep the papers, that's great. What I really want to talk about is the stuff that's not in that folder. Do you want to be buried or cremated? What type of ceremony do you want to have? And to me, it's leading with what do you want your legacy to be? How do you want people to feel after you pass away? What type of celebration would honor you? And use the not excuse, use the reason that I'm going to be the one that is executing this for you. So if I don't know, then you're going to have to rely on me choosing and it may not match up with what you want. So that's the best way that I always suggest bringing it up. You don't even have to talk about the financial assets. You don't have to ask who's going to be executor or where things are going to go. Regardless, if you are a close family member, you're going to have some hand in wrapping up that person's life. And so you have a vested interest in making sure their wishes are taken care of. When Kevin's relative passed away, his aunt was calling everybody in the family. Did Uncle Dave ever talk to you about this? Did Uncle Dave ever mention funerals to you? Because they never talked about it in 40 years and he didn't talk about it to anybody else. So even if one person in the family has that conversation, they're going to be able to help when the time comes. So once you've created a will, what do you do with it? And, you know, obviously you need a piece of paper. From my understanding, you can't store it online. So it seems kind of a fragile process and not a super secure process to uh, put your entire estate into, you know, a piece of paper. So what exactly do you do with it? How do you safeguard it? How can you make sure that it's protected and that people know where to find it once, you know, if they need to find it? Yeah, it's interesting. Our customer service specialist wrote in Slack the other day that she had a customer say that they kept their will in the freezer and she was so perplexed. Why would you keep your will in the freezer? <laughs> but the answer is it's the most fireproof place in your home. Oh, so wow. people do keep their wills in the freezer, in the fridge. They keep them in fireproof envelopes, in safes, in filing cabinets, drawers at the office. The answer is they keep it in a safe place because that's their only option. Because to your point, you can't store it online. So in the future, my hope is that there will be a national repository registry 
you know, central place where everyone will go to register their wills, to keep them. And then your family will easily just be able to go to that one central place and get the document after you pass. Until then, the onus is really on the person to work in a safe place, tell their executor and family that they made it and where it is, because that's the biggest problem. When Aretha Franklin passed away, her family didn't know if she had a will. They searched in the couch cushions a year later, found a handwritten will. It was such a mess. Uh, so you got to tell them that, that you actually did it. And then once you've stored it in a safe place, let's just go back to it once a year. So it's pretty offline right now. That file folder is pretty old school, but it's the best we've got right now. I want to switch the focus to Willful and the company in general now. How has your business evolved and changed in the last 12, 14, 16 months? What were some of the challenges in not only building your company, but also managing, I, I imagine, a large demand of people and a large amount of interest? And what are some of the, the wins out of this experience in building the company as well? Well, when COVID first hit in March 2020, I think like everybody, like any small business owner, I was terrified. You have no idea how it's going to affect you. You're, you're moving to remote work for the first time. We did have an in-office culture previously, but it soon became very evident that everyone was petrified and that meant that they wanted to actually get their wills in place because they've been putting it off for years. So we saw about a 600% increase in traffic and sales in the first six to eight weeks of COVID. Then I think as that initial panic started to subside, it leveled out a bit. But the long-term impact that we've seen is that there's this general prioritization of emergency preparedness and putting an importance on things like wills. Anything positive has come out of it, it is that, that we actually as a society have come to talk about, care about and prioritize emergency planning a lot more because of COVID. We kind of just went along the, our business in COVID and we grew to, I think, 14 people. We closed seed funding in May of 2020, which was kind of wild to do in the middle of the pandemic. We expanded to Quebec a few months ago with a bilingual platform. We even filmed Dragon's Den uh, with COVID protocols in early June, which is going to air this fall. So, so yeah, we've felt very fortunate and grateful to be able to grow our business during the pandemic and to have a product that was conducive, not only because of the topic and subject matter, but because of the online nature. We saw tons of senior citizens who may have gone to a lawyer previously who came to us and said, thank goodness I found you because otherwise I just wouldn't have been able to get this in place, but they could then do it from their smartphone from home. So that's really kind of our journey over the past 12 to 18 months. And as for the future, for us, we're really focused on becoming Canada's household brand for anything to do with end of life, whether that's life insurance, estate planning, funerals, and we won't do all of those things. We'll connect people to partners. But yeah, that's we have big ambitions. We want to be the Kleenex for end of life in Canada. <laughs> and so as a result of this, you know, growing interest and a growing conversation around this topic, has it helped to open up a dialogue around death at all in terms of how you're engaging with clientele or just normal conversations around death? Do you feel like the culture and taboo 
is changing on that conversation and on that topic? I think it is. I mean, it's very rare that I meet someone who doesn't share their own personal story about estate planning, whether it's you, Lance, saying, oh, my goodness, I need to learn more about this because I need to get my own will, or whether it's someone saying, I created my will 30 years ago with a lawyer, it's been gathering dust, or, you know, I had a friend pass away without a will. People are very, very open, at least with me, about their own experiences with end of life, family members passing away, estate administration, uh, and I do think that more dinner table conversations included those topics because of COVID, because it was so top of mind. And inevitably, you know, I don't know about you, but every time I attend a funeral on the drive home, Kevin, my husband and I just talk about our end of life plans, right? Because you're leaving a funeral and you're like, oh, I would, I don't want a funeral home funeral. You better not throw me a ceremony like that. I want the big party. I want this. So it inevitably sparks those conversations. And unfortunately, many people had relatives pass away this year. So they were having those conversations in their homes. That has been, I think, a positive outcome as well, is that we have seen the needle move on that reticence as a society to talk about death, but we're still a long ways away from it being as ubiquitous to talk about as The Bachelorette, which I also <laughs> very much enjoy. Now, I mean, given the context of your work, what does legacy mean to you in terms of what we've already discussed today, but also in terms of the company that you're building, uh, the conversations that you're having, how do you define it? And how have you seen people define it for themselves? To me, I mean, I've always defined reputation as what people say about you when you're not in the room. And to me, legacy is that, but on a larger scale. It's what people say about you long after you're gone. It's how you're remembered and more importantly, how you made people feel. And so a big passion of mine and the legacy we want to leave at Willful is influencing gifts to charity and wills. So we've had you know, over 7,000 gifts left to charity, over $30 million in cash gifts alone um, left to organizations all over the world and in Canada. So that's really the legacy we want to live is influencing people or educating them about how to leave gifts to charity and how that can be a part of your estate plan. And then for my own personal legacy, I mean, I've always tried to be someone who is super optimistic, super positive, really try to give back and be helpful through charity work, but also with mentorship of young entrepreneurs, because I had so many people act as mentors and guides to me when I was an early stage entrepreneur or early on in my career. And I think we're really good at that in Canada, at paying it forward and really helping to foster the next generation. So and hopefully my legacy also includes my love for Fast and the Fast and Furious franchise and pizza. Those are like my, <laughs> my two loves in life. I guess right. my and husband then, as well. And The Bachelorette. Or The Bachelor, the, the Bachelorette. Yeah, yeah. So as you know, I mean, we have a podcast, Mission Critical. We talk about really purpose and mission and values. And today we obviously talked about unpacking that whole experience of what it's like to plan for your end of life planning and everything like that. But what would you say, and I guess this is in a way tied to legacy, but what would you say is your mission? What informs the decisions you make on a daily basis to the big macro decisions? And how do you convince people to get on board with your mission as well? Yeah, so I think our larger mission would be empowering Canadians with accessible and affordable end-of-life planning tools to equip them with, you know, being prepared for death in a digital age. So that really encompasses any aspect of end-of-life planning and emphasis on affordable, convenient, and empowering Canadians to do it themselves. So that's probably kind of our, our main mission. There's this 
nascent death tech in quotation marks space in Canada that includes folks like Irene, which does direct to consumer cremation, Afterward, which is an ex-Shopify uh, founder who is uh, doing virtual funerals. So there's so many companies in and around the space, but investors and, and stakeholders are sometimes perplexed by us. They're like, wait, you're in what? Death tech? Is that even a thing? So we definitely do a lot of education on the investor side as well about our space and why we think it's interesting. But ultimately, COVID also shone a spotlight on that. And I think more corporate partners and uh, investors and other kind of strategic partners have sat up and taken notice of this. We don't have to convince people as much anymore, but the easiest way I convince them is I just say, death is the only inevitability in life. And can you name one company in Canada that is a go-to for end of life planning? And no one can ever name a company. I always just say, great, Willful's gonna be that company. Willful sits at an interesting intersection that acknowledges an aging global population and a growing tech community. Like many traditional industries that have remained complacent and failed to innovate, the business of death is no exception. Companies like Willful are looking to pull back the shroud of taboo and provide solutions that will make an emotional and sometimes painful experience a little easier to navigate. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd appreciate it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts so we can get the word out. To keep up to date, subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, ask yourself, what's your mission?